because you're jumping back into the gap. All right, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media on Twitter at Bball Immersion or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Awesome to welcome University of Nebraska head coach Fred Hoiberg to the podcast. Hoiberg brings a distinguished resume to Nebraska that includes four years as an NBA front office executive, four years as an NBA head coach, and five years at Iowa State, where he orchestrated the biggest tournament in Big 12 history in 2011 and 2012, and guided the school to four straight NCAA tournament appearances. Of course, Hoiberg also played in the NBA, and we're going to dive into that and so much more on this podcast. Coach Hoiberg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. How are you doing? I'm awesome. Uh, exciting to talk to you for sure. And uh, coach, I had a chance to watch you run a practice with Chicago Bulls during training camp. And uh, I imagine a lot of people that haven't seen both maybe are curious, what are some of the main differences between an NCAA training camp and an NBA training camp? Well, I, I think the biggest thing, Chris, is the amount of time <clears throat> that you have. Uh, that's a big difference in college. Uh, we get so much time with the kids now really going all the way back to June. That's when we started with our first summer session was on June 8th. And you get four hours a week with them in the gym. They get four hours in the weight room. Uh, you get a couple days between sessions and then you go right into summer session two, which is basically the entire month of July. Uh, you know, we mix in recruiting at that time and give our guys a couple weeks before they come back for the fall semester. And we really get right back to work again with four hours in the off season. Uh, heading into the official date this year, which was September 27th, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, just the amount of time, you've got a lot of your philosophies in already in uh, in college when you head into normal practice. Uh, you know, back in the old days when I played, you basically played pickup in the off season. And then once October 15th hit, that was the official start date of practice. And there was such an excitement in the air <clears throat> for that. And now you have so much time uh, going into it, really been practicing for a couple months already before uh, the official start date. So we've got a lot of our concepts in just as far as, um, you know, our absolutes, what we're looking to do offensively, defensively. Uh, in an NBA training camp, you got about a week <laughs> to get everything in. Uh, you do have a little time. Most players come back after Labor Day and you'll get, you know, an hour with them in uh, in the mornings. Uh, leading into training camp, which generally starts right about the beginning of October. Uh, but then you've got much more conceptual ideas that you put in in the NBA, where in college you have, like I said, so much more time uh, to get your system in. You know, as far as what you're doing, you know, as far as drills and that type of thing, that's a lot of same, a lot of similarities. Uh, you know, you have, I think it's five days now of two-a-days back playing for Larry Brown when I was with the Pacers. You had about 28 days of two-a-days, but, you know, the player Association got involved and, and they've really minimized uh, those two-a-days and the amount of contact that you can have in a certain day. But, you know, I think that's the biggest difference, Chris. You just have so much more time to get everything in in the, in the college game. I mean, there's two factors, obviously, uh, COVID and coaching during the pandemic and then coming back from the NBA to college. So I'm curious if your philosophy has changed a little bit 
in terms of the efficiencies and and really valuing what's important more than maybe in the past because of uh, you know those two experiences. You know what? I really did change my philosophy. We got hit with COVID probably as hard as anybody in the nation last year. We had ten of our guys all in a rotation, <clears throat> uh, four of our coaches that came down with the virus. And they basically shut us down for 21 days where we couldn't even come in the gym. They were just trying to stop the spread, which is the right thing to do, uh, you know, with so many unknowns with the uh, uh, with the coronavirus. And, you know, we came back. I think we had five days to prepare ourselves to play 14 days and 29 days, which is, uh, you know, basically an NBA type schedule. In fact, I think we saw only five teams in the world had more games in that amount of time than we did. And we came back with deconditioned bodies. Uh, after the shutdown and really started playing really good basketball at the end of last season, uh, you know, which is really kind of a mental type approach to our practices. When you have one day in between games, you, uh, you know, you can only put so much in and you obviously have to have legs, try to be as fresh as possible heading into that grueling uh, schedule. So I have changed the way that I look at things uh, leading into games. Uh, you know, we aren't going as long uh, this year in our practices, we're still going very uh, intense, um, you know, and, and I think part of that, Chris, one of the reasons if we go an hour in 20 minutes or an hour and a half, generally those guys are coming back for a second skill session or they're coming back for individual film work. So you get the guys in and those are very important when you're trying to build relationships, which is so critical uh, when you're putting a team together, uh, you know, trying to build a trust level with your players to have those individual sessions are very important. Uh, so I've changed my approach instead of going two or two and a half hours, uh, we've really shortened things up. And, you know, obviously having fresh legs is, uh, is as important as anything once you start competition. That's fascinating to hear some of the changes that uh, you and others have gone through because of these experiences. And going back to kind of, uh, you know, talking about your college experience now of installing things. What are some of the first things that you install when it comes to offense, knowing that you have this amount of time to now periodize and work with? Well, a lot of the things we worked on, <clears throat> especially going back to that first summer session, were fundamentals and, um, you know, pivoting, jump stopping, passing, uh, you know, all the different angles that we will have within the framework of our offense and our system. So really those first couple of weeks, it was really all about skill work, getting a point guard with a big, throwing the pocket, throwing the lob. Uh, once you go like position with the point guard and in, in a wing, you know, work on the shake pass out of the corner, work on coming to a jump stop when playing in a crowd. Uh, just all those things to hopefully take care of the basketball better uh, than we did a year ago. And we didn't have an offseason last year. None of us did because of COVID. And, you know, then you get in, it really was more NBA-like last year when you had a short amount of time to get everything in. So early on, really for us, it was about the basics and the fundamentals. As far as when, once we start implementing the system, uh, you know, we always start out with pace. And we've always been one of the top pace teams going back to my days at Iowa State. And that's the number one thing that we work on. We've had, uh, I think, top five in the power five is in pace in my first two years here at Nebraska. We really wanted to implement a system uh, that we felt could be successful over the long run. You know, we feel really good about our roster this year as far as hopefully taking advantage. I think 82% of our shots were in the restricted area and from the three-point line last year. Uh, the two areas you want to manufacture your shots and have your shot profile uh, with the two most efficient shots on the floor. And we feel we're better um, equipped to take advantage of those situations when they present themselves. As far as implementing it, <clears throat> we're always looking at early spacing in the possession. You know, if we can come down, have great spacing, draw two to the ball, if you keep that spacing, you're going to be able to 
um, uh, hopefully get a high quality shot uh, if you make the simple play. So, you know, for us early, it's getting the ball up with pace. You know, I remember Kevin McHale, who I played for and who I worked with, uh, you know, playing in those old Celtics teams. He always talked about, you know, playing fast. You can't just say you're going to play fast. You have to work on playing fast. Uh, you can't just roll the ball out there and say we're going to shoot it in the first 10 seconds. It takes a lot of work to make sure you get the spacing right. Uh, you know, if you attack a certain seam and a gap where the spacing, uh, you know, where the guys need to be, where they need to go in case you do uh, it, run into help defense. Uh, so early possession, early offense is really what we work on for probably about a month. And once we get that right, then we start adding uh, to our system more of our set type actions. Uh, great insights into how you do and what you do. And you said pace, and this is a curious question is mainly, why does pace matter? Because we hear this buzzword a lot, as you said already, and you guys actually reflect it. But why is it so important to play with pace? Well, for us, we, we play in a conference that's as good defensively as any in the country. <clears throat> and if we can get the ball down the floor quickly and strike before the defense gets set, that's what we're always looking to do early uh, in the possession. Uh, if they are set, obviously we have our flow package. Uh, you know, our offense is a read and react system. It's, it's very much an NBA style offense with the spread five out system that we run. And that goes all the way back to when we had a guy, Royce White, at Iowa State, who was a freight train coming down the floor. We led the nation in threes that year by spacing uh, the floor out and giving the ball to Royce and letting him go to work. So, you know, we've been running that five out system, uh, you know, really going all the way back to my second year at Iowa State when the transfers that we had that really turned around our program became eligible just based on the skill set of our players. Uh, we were traditional that first year with a very good point guard, Deontay Garrett, who played a couple years in the NBA. Uh, but then we really started with the five out spread and we pretty much stuck with it, whether it was Iowa State, Chicago, uh, or certainly now here at Nebraska, where we've added to that. Uh, but that's what NBA basketball is right now. It's a five out spread, read and react in playing off it. <clears throat> and uh, again, that's what's when the world of analytics that we live in, uh, that's what creates those rim attempts and in, uh, in open three point shots. Are you a proud coach now seeing the spread of five out everywhere? Because you were definitely one of the early adopters, especially in the college game. Yeah, we, we were. And again, that was just based on, I remember sitting down, uh, Bobby Lutz, who was coming off a very successful 10-year run at University of Charlotte. Uh, he and I sat down and really talked about how we could take advantage of a frontline player in Royce White because of his unique skill set. A lot of people, just because of size, uh, you're going to put a guy like that on the block. And, you know, we just felt he was so unique. His best quality was as a passer. And then with Chris Babb and Tyrus McGee and Chris Allen and Scott Christopherson, we had great shooting around them. And then we went to George Niang, who came in after uh, Royce, and we stayed with that, you know, the hybrid type player. Royce always called himself, I'm an H. He called himself an H, which stood for hybrid. And, you know, it is. It, it's our, I think our job as coaches is you have to figure out the skill set of your team and then try to put them in a position where they can be successful. And in that second year with Royce, we spread it out and then we stuck with it. And what it does, Chris, it, you know, it takes the big away from the basket. That's what creates all those driving lanes. Uh, I believe that year, uh, Kansas gave up 40 points in the paint. You know, people think it's just a three point shooting offense and all three of those games were against us because we had Jeff with you, who was the number one shot blocker in the country, we were able to stretch him out and take him away from the rim. And that's, what, again, what creates rim attempts where that defense collapses, and that's what uh, creates those kick-out, hopefully open threes if you keep your spacing. Hey, Coach, brief interruption from the podcast. Have you heard of Spotify Greenroom? 
Spotify Greenroom is a free audio-only social media platform for sports fans. Start enjoying ongoing conversations, watch games together, react to the biggest news, rumors, and games. Talk with other sports fans, insiders, athletes, and executives in real time. I host a room every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Come through and talk with me live. All you need to do is download the Spotify Greenroom app free in the iOS or Android app store. Create a profile, link your Twitter, and join the conversation. Follow me at B-Ball Immersion on Twitter to be notified when my room goes live. I think one of the other early things you adopted uh, in the college game was flattening out to the corners as well. This modern spacing, which is obviously a big part of the five out. Curious then, because I think a lot of college coaches, high school coaches ask this question. What are some of the things that you have to modify for the college spacing to be able to make the five out work even better? Yeah, it's, you know, we still try to keep the pro spacing concepts. Uh, you know, if we come into a drag screen, for example, so missed shots, we're going to flow into a drag, a step up or a double drag. Uh, you know, not going to look over our shoulder and, and see what I'm calling. We have our flow package up based on a miss, and that's getting the floor flattened out and coming down with an early uh, early ball screen. So we really want to keep that opposite wing. Uh, we have what we call a no-fly zone on our floor. So we really want to stay outside of that on the weak side to try to create that spacing. And again, with analytics, you're trying to eliminate those three-point attempts. So naturally, if you're outside, uh, you know, that – no fly zone and we incorporate the four point line, which a lot of the NBA Spurs, San Antonio Spurs concept. And if we stay outside that, hopefully that will, uh, you know, keep the defense closer to eliminate those threes. And again, that's, what's going to create driving lanes. And once you get into that paint, uh, you should have a lot of options. Another uh, high school specific question is what do you do with non shooters? Obviously you're trying to recruit five shooters, but you've had situations where you have these non shooters. So how are you adapting your system for them? Yeah, we we'll, we'll play those guys. Um, you know, we'll play them in the dunker, the dunker spot a lot. Uh, even if they're a guard, uh, it's a good position to be in where it could create. You know, we had a kid, Dustin Hogue at Iowa State, who was an unbelievable player. Just you know, great size, six six. Uh, you know, just it did everything for us. Um, you know, he came in with a reputation of not being able to shoot. I think he took one three in his two years at Indian Hills Junior College. So what we did with Dustin is we would play him down in that in the dunker uh, spot area to create some short pick and roll uh, type situations and then put him in a really good spot to offensive rebound where he, he was an absolute animal on the glass. So, you know, it was, uh, you know, something that we, uh, you know, we'll do with non-shooters. We'll use them as screeners, uh, you know, flaring the shrink if, uh, if a team's in a pack uh, type defense. Uh, you know, try to slip them out and get them rim opportunities. We'll post uh, our wings if we have an advantage, a mismatch uh, situation. So, you know, those are certain things that you can do. But I think that dunker spot doesn't matter what position you are. We put point guards in that position, too. Uh, when we run an action to get a live pick and roll for our wing, uh, you know, put them down in those areas and keep their spacing heels on the baseline. And that can create some good opportunity at the rim. Yeah, great insight there and uh, understanding. Uh, you you kind of mentioned you're not a systems guy, and we get the, the idea here that you you like to run this flow game. Obviously, you like to have your players understand the concepts, and you run actions based on the strength of your personnel. I'm imagining another part of this, and I want you to discuss, is this idea of also hunting potential mismatches and attacking them, which is also a part of this philosophy. Yeah. And, you know, NBA, you see this a lot more, Chris, you see a lot of small on small ball screens to try to get the matchup that you want. And then you get your switch attack uh, offense and you, you, you go from there and try to attack. Uh, yeah. Hopefully the mismatch that you create with the small, small, which most teams are switching 
uh, now. And, um, you know, we will incorporate some of that just to hopefully get the matchup that we want the floor. And then as you attack the switch, uh, you know, may not be for you, but if you can shrink the floor and, and create an open three, uh, you know, that's obviously a very good uh, option. So, you know, those are things that, that we will do to try to create uh, a mismatch. You know, we've got two things that we will do against the switch, uh, try to get a high-low opportunity if they front a big, if a guard, if you can create that, or we will retreat, <clears throat> you know, if you switch a center off onto our point guard, we'll retreat it and get a full head of steam and go into attack mode, uh, you know, again, to try to get into the paint, create a, a good high-quality, high-percentage high shot. Yeah, that boomerang type action. And I don't know, is that what you called it in the NBA or was it called something else? Yeah, I mean, we, we just called it retreat or reload. So retreat, if we retreat reload, it, cool. we'll keep it, and then we'll just go ahead of steam or you can retreat, hit, and then boomerang it back or reload it. So those, those uh, that's what we call it. And then, you know, we actually had the third R. We had retreat, reload, and then rescreen. So if you get a four-man to switch, then you could do a five-on-four ball screen and see how they, uh, you know, guard an action that they're not used to guarding. No, very cool. And then uh, that uh, boomerang and that retreat and reload type of situation, what are your teaching points for the guard or the player with the mismatch? Do you want them running into the pass? That's traditionally what we see. On the boomerang, absolutely. Yeah, yeah you want to go and, you know, we call it the go and catch. You're going into your move before you catch it and, you know, really try to uh, get a good downhill uh, attack uh, going into that move. And that's also basically the stampede action, which has become popular as well, as you want a player to be able to four-point line space pass to attack an early helper and you want them running into that as well yeah yeah for for sure and you know again on the shake pass if you can create a tag uh on the single side and you're already going into your move you see i think dallas was the best in the league at that in fact they had a couple actions that they would run for the shake into the go and catch which would generally create a rim attempt that's yeah, great to get some of these insights into some of these actions that we see all the time. And uh, I'm curious, where do you get a lot of your actions? Do they come from the NBA, other college teams overseas? Where are you getting some of it? Because I think everyone's in agreement. You run great stuff. Yeah, I, you know, a lot of it comes from uh, from Mike Budenholzer. I, I think he really kind of revamped the game and went for more of a four out. Uh, you know, he would still run his swing type action, but he did it early in Atlanta with a post, uh, generally with Al Horford in there um, or Millsap. And, you know, he really kind of morphed into the five out offense that you see now, the spread, and he runs a lot of great actions out of it. So that's one <clears throat> team that we study every year uh, is Milwaukee. You know, I think Kenny Atkinson, when he was running the five out stuff in Brooklyn, ran great stuff for Joe Harris and, and those guys. And obviously had the forceful rim roller and Jared Allen. Uh, and, uh, you know, Detroit's running some good stuff out of the five out now. I, I, you know, the angle that Chicago watched a couple of their preseason games uh, on their wide action, you know, screening the opposite wing, coming down in transition, just changing up angles. So it's, it's always evolving. And, you know, you just want to try and stay as up to date as possible. Um, but, you know, as far as who we really initially studied, you know, we took some of the five out concepts that we had uh, initially when we started at Iowa State and then really added to our package uh, based on what Budenholzer uh, was running. I think he was really the first guy in the NBA that really spread it out and went to that five out. Yeah. I always think that's a coach. Like when they're talking about like him getting fired, I think coaches who coach appreciate him and what he's done and really how he's evolved the game uh, more than I guess fans. Right. A hundred percent. And, you know, it, it was interesting to see really in the finals, they went away from a lot of their five out stuff. They went to a lot more single side drag, single side, double drag. And, and they really uh, took advantage of that. And, and, and again, really tried to force, the uh, mismatch, get the right matchup, and then they would space it out and attack 
uh, the switch. So, you know, they would still have their system, their five out, but they really went through a lot more ball screen stuff uh, in the playoffs a year ago. What, what are some of the things that you brought back from the NBA this time that you think are the most relevant and maybe that uh, coaches should, you know, I, again, I still hear coaches say they don't like watching the NBA compared to college, but what, let, let's sell them a little bit on some of the things that they should be watching for that you think are most relevant back to college. Oh, I think the biggest thing is the spacing, <clears throat> you know, NBA spacing is, is, is so superior, I think, to any other uh, league in uh, certainly in America. Obviously, the European teams have uh, have great have always had great spacing uh, and great movement. But, you know, the, the league has gone and, you know, I think gets a little bit of a bad rap. Uh, you know, back when I was playing in the NBA, it was really isolation basketball because of the defense, illegal defense rule where you couldn't go below the free throw line and you couldn't cross the midpoint. It was basically two on two basketball and you'd lift. Uh, a lot of times it was your three and five man, just get them out of the way. And it just created a lot of stagnant isolation basketball. Now it was fun to watch the great ones, uh, you know, make, you know, seeing Jordan in isolation uh, basketball. But then, you know, when they really started winning championships is when they went to a system, which was obviously the triangle. Uh, so, you know, now, you know, when you watch Golden State, when you watch Utah, when you watch uh, Milwaukee, uh, really, you know, most NBA teams now are running movement type actions or have a system that really generates ball movement. And it is fun basketball to watch. Now you still have your heavy ISO teams and heavy ISO players, but the game has really evolved And the NBA now is so much more of a movement type system. And, and I think you get some really good basketball out of that. Yeah, it's aesthetically very enjoyable to watch. I agree. So uh, it's fun. And uh, I've heard you say this, and I'm imagining this is still the case. If you said, if we really like a certain action, we might try to get to that same action out of two different sets or multiple different sets. Can you talk about that? Because I think that's such a key point for coaches to understand. Yeah, it, it, no doubt about it. it you know, the, let's just talk the get game, for example. Uh, when you curl off uh, a screen, force the help, and then you get a naked get game with the ball handler and the big, uh, just getting that at different areas on the floor. And, and we've got a lot of different things that will run. Uh, to get to the uh, the get, whether it's coming down a wide pin into it, you can run you know a stagger uh, into it. You can run a UCLA on the side of the floor into the get, uh, you know, and that will help get some you know back cut opportunities. So just different ways to get actions on the floor where hopefully you force that help or force two onto the ball, and then again take advantage of that when uh, when that arises. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, in your flow game, either a drag or a double drag, for example, in this flow game and this conceptual part of it. And coaches are always fascinated by triggers, I think, nowadays, because everyone believes conceptual is obviously a good way to play. So can you just give us an idea of, say, some of the triggers that might trigger the difference between a drag and a double drag, for example? Yeah, yeah. Good, good question, Chris. Uh, you know, I think a big thing, if the big is ahead of the ball, and what we tell our big is if he doesn't have a clear advantage to the basket, if he does, we'll obviously run to the rim and, and try to get something uh, early in the possession but you know if he's ahead of the ball uh, we will go right into a step up and our step up generally happens on the lane line or probably step out on the pro lane line and again you keep that opposite wing outside that no fly zone get him wide out of the way and as the big rolls then you shake behind the play so if the big's ahead of the ball that will trigger the step up uh, action we do not balance the floor so if we have a single side action uh, you know you keep the side loaded <clears throat> on the weak side and then if you hit the top we'll run you know whether it's a back cut or a pin in uh just based on how the defense is playing um you know we really have incorporated the low drag this year uh you know try to get it down by the logo spot 
and really create a wide seam. So if we have a single side where the big is behind the play, then he'll come set that low drag uh, on the, in the logo area. And it's been good for us. We've, we've seen a lot of good uh, things happen with our team when we get into that situation. If the big is even with the ball uh, in, let's say the four man is, is trailing the play a little bit, we'll just go into the single drag. Uh, one of the things we really stress to our big as we come down in our flow package is, is to seek out the bottom hip of the defender. The job of the big is to get the guard to go over. And then as soon as you see those feet open up and going over, then the big is running to the rim. And now you're hopefully getting a, you know, the other big and, and, and creating help on the ball where you can get the big roll into the basket or hit the shake or get the opposite corner. Uh, if that man stays in the opposite low man, if he helps on the roll. So just based on that. And then if the bigs are together, then that's when we, we could potentially flow into the double drag and then we can pin on it if the, let's say the first one's a shooter and the double drag can take a step down a lot of people call it oklahoma action and then five pins on the four or if the four sets the second then you can flare him uh, so those are just some of the triggers that we will have uh, coming down based on our flow that's awesome what detail and uh, i want to come back to a little bit of single side tags but before that another trigger is a hit ahead is a pass ahead and then what type of things are are flowing conceptually when you do pass ahead yeah, we hit ahead. Obviously, the first thing we're looking for is attacking the basket. <clears throat> and, you know, as, as you have that attack, um, you got to get that opposite corner fill, just, you know, spacing one on one concepts, get that big to the front of the rim. And then the point guard threw ahead. We've got to pull behind to make sure we have that outlet in case he gets stuck. Uh, if you have, you know, traditional defense helping out trapping the box, you have to have that outlet pulling behind uh, the ball. Uh, the other thing that we really look for. Uh, on the throw ahead, if we don't have the attack, we can throw back to the point guard, then that will trigger the, you know, us getting into our five out stuff, whether it's a swing, swing into a stagger uh, or a swing to the point guard coming up to the top. And then we've got four or five different things we'll run out of that. Hey coach, we have a new sponsor that you guys are going to love. Symbol is the stock market for sports that allows you to profit off your sports knowledge. On Symbol, you can trade sports teams like stocks and every time your team wins, you earn cash. Using your sports knowledge on Symbol to buy low, sell high, and earn cash payouts when your team wins. Join the 7,000-plus early adopters who have started to invest in their favorite team. Visit www.symbol.com to create a free account. And when you deposit, make sure you use the promo code SD to make your deposit risk-free. And uh, the other thing coming back to a little bit is this concept of matchup hunting. And uh, you mentioned it's obviously a big part of the NBA uh, is this something we're going to see happen more and more in the college game? Do you think that's going to trickle down a little bit more? I think so. I, you know, I think a lot of it is, um, you know, you see a lot of the same thing. Coaches kind of are who they are a lot of times, Chris. And, you know, if they've run a system and had success with it, then, you know, you're going to see them stick with uh, what they've done. And some coaches run the same thing, regardless of who they have out on the floor and they recruit to those systems. And, you know, for us, um, you know, we're always going to try to put, our guys in in a position to be successful based on skill set. So, you know, we'll have different actions. I ran a couple of different things in Chicago, uh, you know, when we had more ISO type players and we try to create those mismatches. And then when we got younger, uh, we really ran a motion uh, type offense. And, and, and I thought, you know, had, had great movement, uh, you know, at a year where we had uh, Lowry Markinen and Bobby Portis and Nikola Mirotic and Chris Dunn, and, you know, Denzel Valentine, but, you know, we had a six week stretch where we had the second best record in the Eastern conference because our movement was so good. 
and then late in the game would get the right matchup. And, you know, Chris Dunn really kind of turned into our finisher at that time. That was a fun team to coach, just, you know, the youth that we had and how bought in uh, they were and, and uh, you know, really the movement type thing uh, that we had. Dunn had a concussion against Golden State, went up to dunk it, fell, lost balance, and had a concussion, was out. And, you know, those things unfortunately happen. But, you know, for a stretch with the movement that we had uh, with that group, it, it, was, uh, it was certainly a fun team to coach. I, I, it was enjoyable to watch and all your teams have always been enjoyable to watch. I think that's, that's been a, a testament to, I think us as coaches loving watching your teams, which is great. Um, wondering now with, we talked about single side tag uh, also coaches who have coached in college in the NBA, love getting your perspective on ball screen defense first, because that seems to be again, very different from the NBA to college, how teams traditionally cover ball screens. Well, the, the old traditional NBA was really keeping the ball on the side and, and icing uh, the ball screen. It's really gone more to pushing the ball as the, as bigs have become more skilled. You know, you see more pushing the ball into the screen. There's not, not a lot of teams that ice uh, the pick and roll. In fact, you used to never see it in college. Now you probably see it in college more than you do in the agreed. NBA. Yeah, agreed. Um, when I was at Iowa State, we were, I think, the only team in the Big 12 that iced pick and roll. We've changed. We've now uh, pushing – the ball to the screen and again a lot of that is based on the ability of front line players to shoot the basketball now so um you know for us and i think this is more of an nba concept you're trying to create that tag off the off the uh, single side to create the shake opportunity and the shake pass and most teams are going to put their best shooters uh you know in that strong corner as the big roles to shake out of that corner uh what we where we help is off the opposite low man and and this is a Budenholzer term that you know we call that opposite low man the mig and we call it the most important guy in our system so that opposite low man he is in the restricted area which you can do more in college because of the defensive three second rule in the nba and then that guy on top is now what we call the rover so our rover will take first pass which could create if it goes to the corner an x out opportunity so that's how we do it. You know, we try to get up to the level of the screen. Uh, we also have a defense where we'll drop and play, pretty much play the uh, uh, pick and roll in a two-on-two, what they call in the NBA the center field defense, and then stay home with the shooters. So, you know, just a couple – yeah, I think you always have to have a couple different coverages. And then the third one, obviously, is the switch. And we'll switch one through five with certain lineups uh, out there on the floor, and we'll try to kick out the guard. Um, and that's a, that's become a very popular NBA concept really Houston Rockets um with uh uh, uh you know when D'Antoni was there and you know they really switched everything one through five and, and did a phenomenal uh job with it and those those teams are hard to hard to play against because it created a lot it took it takes away the movement when you have those switching defenses if you don't have a great ISO player you know that, that can make for some long nights I'm sure you were part of these conversations but I remember so many coaches during that time just trying to prepare themselves for attacking switches nonstop, right? That's and we it. thought that that was going to take over the game. And it really hasn't taken over the game as much as we probably anticipated, was it? No, you're absolutely right. You know, and, and Jeff Bezdelic was the guy that was really behind those defenses. He was phenomenal. And, you know, we did a study with him one summer, and he, he was he was great. And we took that into uh, to the next season. But um, it was, you know, I think one team that really changed that, Golden State, they just kept moving. And, you know, when Houston would switch against them, they'd flare and slip and, and get a lot of action. So I think that changed it some, Chris. If you have a great ISO player, sure, you get the guy. Uh, but, you know, Capella – moved his feet as well as a guard did and you know those guards uh you know Harden was a better 
post defender, uh, you know, at that time than he was a perimeter defender. Chris Paul went in there and he battled and fronted and, you know, again, it just created a lot of stagnant offense. But Golden State, they just kept moving and, and kind of changed, I think, the philosophy on how you attack a switching defense. I think a lot of people are grateful they kept moving so we didn't have to watch that all the time. And we do see a lot more variability because of that. So that's fun. You talked about the MIG, the opposite low helping regardless. Uh, and I'm imagining this. Is, is it regardless of which direction the ball screen, whether it's coming towards or away from? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it is. And, you know, if it's a step up angle, uh, you still have to get that MIG in there that's responsible to help the roll man. And then we'll cat mouse it. If they hit the guy at the, at the uh, free throw line and, you know, their big guy wants to shoot, uh, you know, a semi-contested 16, 17 footer, we're fine with that. Uh, once they put it on the floor, then you step outside the restricted area and, 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 and try to create that next option. And, you know, whether it's drawing a charge, uh, make them kick out, and then hopefully you have crisp rotations, uh, you know, to continue on with the possession. But yes, we will help with that MIG uh, wherever that ball screen is going. And what are some of the cues for that tag defender about when to stay, when to leave, or as you said, when to cat and mouse? Yeah, we just want them active. You know, that's the number one thing. You can't be passive as the MIG. And, you know, if, if a guy starts his dribble, if you go attack it, then you have to rely on your rover uh, to do his job. And then again, once that kick out is made, then you have to get the scramble uh, situation and, and, and make sure you rotate. And in the center field, you talked about this two on two coverage of ball screens, this drop coverage that hasn't really come into college as much as we would have thought also based on how much it's used in the NBA more, again, more ball screen defensive coverage at the point of the screen. So can you talk about that? Like what is the advantage of doing that at the college level? Yeah. You know, I think a big, honestly, when, when NBA teams were putting it in, I think San Antonio was one of the first when they were playing against Harden and you really tried to force him to take those shots from inside the three point line of the restricted area. And he looked at his percentages at that time and he was such an elite finisher and obviously an elite three point shooter. So if you could get him to take those in between shots and stay home with their shooting, uh, you know, that at least gave you a chance, but you know, so with with the center field, you really don't have a MIG. So, you know, you keep your guys closer to home. You can still be in help position if a team has poor sport, uh, spacing. We always talk to our guys about using their poor spacing against them. Uh, if you can tag, hit, and still recover, uh, you know, be in those positions. But the center field, really, you're dropped all the way underneath the free throw line. Let's say a middle uh, pick and roll is, is, is occurring, and you push to the weak hand and you pursue it. Then if it gets to a certain area on the floor, uh, you have what you call a veer back opportunity where the big takes the guard and then the guard has to get into the legs of the big. And a, a big reason for that is to keep him off the glass uh, on the shot. So if we're thinking about using, you know, either this, this center field action or, you know, using the MIG as the low tag, what are some things that we should consider as a coach between choosing one or the other based on opponent scout or based on personnel? Uh, I think, I think there's a little bit of both to that, Chris. I, you know, I think it's good to have both of them in your package. Um, you know, some of it is if you have a, a big that's very mobile and can get out and impact the ball and maybe create turnovers, uh, they've got good activity, good feet, uh, good hands. And, you know, then you can rely on your on your backline guys to help out until that big can get back into the play. If you have a lumbering, slower big, you know, the center field is probably a better defense. So with the flow or with some of the sets or actions that you run, because uh, we just kind of brought it up in terms of scout, what like how much tweaking do you do from game to game? or, you know, offensive, not necessarily install, but emphasis for certain opponents based on, again, what you identify as their weakness and your strength. 
Yeah, I, you know, obviously every game we're putting in a um, uh, an offensive game plan based on how the defense is playing. If they're a pressure team, if they're going to get out and deny, if they're more pack line, if they're going to switch, if they show, uh, you know, if they're going to trap ball screens, if they trap the post, you know, just all those things come into play when you're putting an offensive game plan together. How well do they get back in defensive transition? You know, all those things, uh, you know, certainly come into play. We're always going to have our staples. We're always going to try to get out and get the ball up the floor quickly. Uh, but if they're a pressure team, then, you know, we've got a series of pressure releases that we will have in play uh, to hopefully expose them on that back cut plays, you know, all those to try to relieve, uh, relieve the pressure. So c- coming from the NBA too, where you have all these resources and probably too much information, I'm imagining another part of this is that when you go back to college, you really know what's important to you in terms of scout and the different analytics. So can you maybe share some insights on what you feel is most important after having all that information thrown at you? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is. You know, number one, uh, you know, we try to limit paint touches as much as possible. When that thing gets in the paint, uh, you know, a certain number of times, you know, you have a pretty good chance of getting beat if, uh, if that thing gets into the paint. So obviously getting back, trying to limit easy baskets as much as possible, you know, that has to be the number one thing in your defense. And I think all of us that are in this position, the first couple of games, you learn a lot about yourselves in your transition defense, you know, how much work it generally needs uh, early in the season. And then, you know, making sure your players understand uh, the importance um, in that area that, you know, the other thing is finishing possessions. Uh, You know, you can work as many rebound drills uh, as you want. We do several every day, but then you go out in the game and all of a sudden they forget how to block out. So, you know, those areas early in the year where you get exposed on it, and then it's about going back and tweaking and watching film and working on it and hopefully improving in two of those very critical areas, uh, you know, as far as our defense is concerned. So I also like asking coaches like yourself, like you played for so many different types of coaches, let's say just as a player. And we talk about Johnny Orr, Tim Floyd, Larry Brown, Larry Bird. You said Kevin McHale already. So how, how is playing for different styles of coaches help prepare you to be a coach? And maybe what are some of the main takeaways that you've had from those experiences? Yeah, it, it really has prepared me, you know, to play for Hall of Fame coaches. You know, Flip Saunders was another one that I played for, one of the most gifted offensive coaches that, uh, that I ever played for. Um, you know, just played play the triangle. I played for Bill Cartwright uh, in Chicago uh, for a couple of years as well. Uh, you know, Larry Bird and Larry Brown had very different philosophies, but both very successful. Uh, Kevin McHale, I think, was the best coach as far as spacing concepts uh, that I ever had. So uh, Johnny Orr was a phenomenal coach, and I took a lot of his up-tempo offense, you know, getting that ball up up the floor, playing an exciting brand of basketball. You know, I think one thing we probably learned the most from, to be honest with you, Chris, is our high school coach. And I played for a guy, Wayne Clinton. We won a state championship uh, senior year. And you just, you know, you're such a sponge at that age and you learn so much about the game fundamentally. And, you know, from, I think all of us going back, a lot of it is how you're taught in an early age. I mean, I I didn't take a three pointer until my junior year because I was stuck on the block. I was an up and under guy with a hook shot. And then, you know, just continue to work on my skill set. My dad was a professor, never touched a basketball in his life. Um, You know, my grandfather was a coach actually at Nebraska for nine seasons, but uh, unfortunately he passed away when I was three years old. So I never really got a chance to talk uh, the game with him. So really I was taught by my coaches. And uh, again, going back to those early years with my high school coach, cause you didn't have the AAU stuff back when I was playing, you know, it was more about playing multiple sports and I played four sports and, 
you know, when it was basketball season, you know, I relied on getting better for my high school coach. So that's an important part of it are those early years. And do you have a guy that's going to teach you the game? Right. And I was very fortunate to have a great one. So speaking to the importance, which you've already acknowledged, the importance of the high school coach in those early development years, and now with your experience with newcomers into the NBA and then obviously back to college, what are we missing in your opinion in terms of some of those development levels that would help prepare players better for college, say, and then professional? Yeah, it's a, a, another great question, Chris. I, you know, the, the thing, you know, there's a lot of great AAU programs out there. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, the one thing that I wish would change a little bit is they would have more of a skill training, uh, also development of, you know, physical development part of their programs. You lose out so much. There's so many games. I mean, you play four games, you play five games in a day and you don't have the intensity. I think you lose the value of winning and losing, uh, a lot of times in that. And then, you know, as important as anything as a young player, you know, the development of your body. And when you're playing that many games, it just takes away from your training, your individual training on your skill, the fundamentals, and then the training uh, to get stronger. And, you know, I think, you know, like I said, back when, you know, when, when I was a kid, I, it, you didn't know any better. I mean, you played all the sports and, you know, I think it was good. I think it was good for me. I, you know, football helped me in a big way, uh, run a track, you know, helped me become more agile, more, uh, you know, faster, stronger. So, you know, all those things, I think made us more well-rounded uh, back then. Certainly you're getting a lot more work on your game, but at the same time, you're working so much and, you know, you worry about the burnout factor. As we talked earlier, when you start training in June and you don't start your season until November, that's a lot of time. I worry about burning our guys out in that amount of time. So, you know, I think fundamentally probably is, is the biggest thing that I think could be fixed uh, by playing less games. And I don't know if that'll ever happen or, you know, there's so much money involved now with, with the AAU stuff and the circuits and that type of thing. Uh, but I think that would, uh, that would help the game if it went more fundamental and then physical development. I agree for sure. Uh, you mentioned relationships already. And I want to say this, when I was at the Bulls practice, you came over as a head coach and introduced yourself. And, and I want to say, I don't say this in judgment of others that don't do it, but I want to say how rare that is in my experiences. So uh, thank you for that. But also talk to me about that because that seems to be part of your philosophy about building relationships. Well, it, it's important, Chris. And, you know, I think the world of you, I think, you know, that I, I love the stuff that you, that you post and, you know, you're one of the few guys I really look at kind of religiously on, uh, on social media. I just think you have so many great ideas and concepts and you post great content of actions and, you know, not just, uh, you know, fr from our continent, but then you go overseas and you post the stuff from some of the greatest minds in the world. And, you know, just the movement that those European teams have, it's, it's phenomenal. So, so fun you know, to I, watch, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, I've always been a big fan of yours and yeah, you, you do try, you, you, you just never know what type of impact you could have on somebody by going and introduce yourself or giving them a car or keeping in touch, uh, you know, to try to talk. I've always tried to share as much as possible. I think that is one of the responsibilities is to help other coaches in this profession grow. And uh, I've, I've been very fortunate in this game, you know, obviously to play it at the highest level for 10 years to work in a front office, uh, you know, to be a general manager for uh, for a couple of years, and then, you know, to, to get involved in coaching at all levels, you know, my alma mater at Iowa State, get a chance to coach at the highest level. And, you know, now back, uh, back in the college game, again, I just, I've been so fortunate. So if I can help 
people along the way, um, you know, certainly I'm there for them. And you're right. There's a lot of coaches that don't, they don't want to share anything. That's fine. That's fine. But, you know, I think it's just based on your personal philosophies. Well, it's great stuff. And I appreciate you saying that. And uh, maybe just to wrap up, I asked you the coaching side of it. So let's ask the playing side of it, you know, because you fill different roles as a player as well, which obviously is probably significantly impacted your ability to be able to be empathetic to your players and to be able to help them understand the process that they're going through. So can you talk about that, how those different roles you played as a player helped you connect with players better, probably? Yeah, it, it, it's helped me a lot. And, you know, as I always say to my players, I, you know, I think the biggest thing you have to have, you have to have honesty and transparency with your players. If you don't, you know, you're going to have a lot of issues on your hands. And we've had individual meetings with all of our players talking about roles as we head into the season. And, you know, you have to be clear and concise on those to try not to not create confusion. I always say, you know, I played every role you can possibly play. Uh, in my over the course of my career, I'm early on in my tenure with with uh, Indiana. I, I didn't even dress for games. I sat behind the bench, you know. Then I went from dressing and being the last guy, and then I became in the rotation, and then I became a starter, and then I became a captain, and you know I became a key contributor on a team that I think had a great chance to win a championship in Minnesota. I had Sam Cassell uh, not torn a muscle in his hip, so you know I played everything you can possibly play. And the thing I always appreciated uh, is when my coach talk to me about what my role was. I may not have liked it, uh, but I accepted it. And that's all you can do. And then be ready when your name is called, because ultimately over the course of a season, you know, we're not running sprint. This is a marathon. You're going to get your name called. And, you know, it's how you approach things will determine how you take advantage of those uh, opportunities. And that's what's going to define, you know, your success as a player. So it is, you, you have to have the relationship to be able to have those conversations um, you know, and, and hopefully everybody accepts them, which it's, listen, if a guy was happy when I came in and said, Hey, listen, you're not in a rotation right now, you'd worry about them because they're competitors. You, of course you expect them to be upset, but at the same time, you know, if ultimately, uh, everyone's on the same page and has the same goal, those roles have to be accepted. And then, as I said, when your name's called, go in and take advantage and hopefully that'll lead to more opportunity. I'm imagining it's not just honesty. It's also, providing them a blueprint to change their role. And, and, and that's got to be a big part of what you're doing for them as well, isn't it? Well, no, no doubt. And, you know, your role, we had guys last year that started out of the rotation that ended up starting for us at the end of the year. And in turn, you had guys that starting that ended up out of the rotation. So, you know, roles are always evolving. They're always changing. And every time you step on that floor, it's opportunity. And, and, and again, players don't necessarily see that in the moment, but providing demonstrative examples of that helps them understand that it's possible, right? Uh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, again, you, you talk to some of the guys even this year that may not be in our early rotation that were in our rotation a year ago and their roles changed. So just continue to use those as examples because you have to try and keep their spirits up as well, because ultimately they are going to have an opportunity uh, to hopefully come out there and impact your team in a positive way. I had mentioned last question, but I got to ask this one. I think I just, I'll give you a quick hit on this one. So what was one thing you brought from college to the NBA that you thought was successful? And then maybe the inverse of that, what was one thing that you brought from the NBA back to college? If you're just to say one thing. Well, that's a great question. I, you know, I think one thing, you know, when I was coaching in college, I always kind of considered myself an NBA guy. I, you know, I'd spent 19 years of my life in the NBA and I'd never coached my only college experiences as a player uh, playing four years at Iowa state under two great coaches, Johnny or Tim Floyd. And when 
I went to the NBA, I really had always run an NBA type system. So, you know, I really kind of considered myself, uh, you know, to be more of an NBA guy. And, you know, in turn, when I came back, um, you know, after getting the opportunity to coach in Chicago, uh, you know, you're, you're competing, obviously, against the greatest minds in the world on a nightly basis. And you just try to take as much from those guys you had an opportunity to compete against and apply it uh, to your system. And, you know, for me, when I got let go, I didn't sit around and hang my head and feel sorry for myself. I went out and use it as an opportunity to learn. I went out and spent a couple of days uh, with Steve Kerr and Golden State, went out and watched other practices. You know, you, you always are learning and you can always get better. You know, I think once you think you got it figured out, you know, it's probably time to get out of this business. Well, we're always learning from you and we're so grateful. Thank you for all you share and uh, for all the cool little counters and plays that you add from a game to game basis. Keep me on Synergy all the time watching you guys. So thank you for all that as well. Well, I appreciate it, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Hey, coach. The best player development is coach development. It's never too late to join basketballimmersion.com. And now we've added two more courses, one on youth basketball coaching and one on advanced pick and roll concepts. Now you have over 25 courses to be able to learn from in addition to 600 videos and 70 plus masterclasses from experts around the world. In addition to an engaged, like-minded community, go to basketballimmersion.com or DM at bballimmersion on Twitter to get started today. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the basketball podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things basketball immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.